This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 FM or at WAGP.net, a special welcome. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. There's many issues that arise in folks' lives. Sometimes it's in relation to their personal life or a passage of Scripture they're trying to understand or apply or some aspect of ministry. And if we can be of help, well, by God's grace, we will look to Him for that wisdom. Again, you can reach us locally at the 843 Exchange, and that's South Carolina 843 Exchange is 525 1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. We give preference to live callers and whether they dictate or go on the air, and uh, we do our best to respond. And when you do have a question, you submit. If we don't get to it, you will be emailed, assuming we have your email address at TBL at WAGP.net. All right, let's get started. Okay, well, Pastor, we had a number of calls that we weren't able to get to last week. One was from Joan in Royston, Georgia. She has older members in her family that were married, then they divorced. The husband then remarried, but that marriage didn't work out. Now the original two are back together, but they say they don't need to formally remarry. What do you think, and are they living in sin? They both claim to be born-again believers. Well, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, just as a general principle to start, we are commanded to submit to governing authorities. And I know in different nations of the world, what that looks like as it relates to marriage can be different. In Western Europe, uh, they often, all they do is go and register their name at a courthouse, and it's done, it's legal, it's considered a marriage. Some nations uh, have a little bit more that's involved, but we're called to submit to governing authorities unless indeed the governing authority is asking us to do something that is uh, unbiblical and against uh, what God clearly states. You've got another issue here altogether, very, very different. Um, And so let me, let's just say for the sake of argument um, that you two were married and you divorced and then you decided we want to get back together. Well, even under those circumstances, you would need to legally register your marriage. And again, the registration of it is a public commitment. And so that's what marriage is. It's a covenant. It's a covenant between a man and a woman that's public in nature. You don't get married in secret, so to speak. Uh, Someone may go as a couple to a justice of the peace, but still their marriage is registered because it's a public commitment. Yours is a very different example, and the passage that comes to mind is Deuteronomy chapter 24, 
in verse 1. In fact, it's an interesting passage because when Jesus addresses the subject of divorce in Mark 10 and in Matthew 19, uh, this is really the point of rub. Uh, It says when a man takes a woman and marries her, and it happens if she finds no favor in his eyes because of some indecency in her. And so if you remember, it's recorded in both Matthew and Mark, some Pharisees came to Christ, and they basically were uh, testing him, and they were asking him his view. Uh, We're told some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him uh, whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. That's how uh, Mark 10 records it. In Matthew chapter 19, let me just turn over there quickly. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife? And Matthew adds, for any reason at all. And the uh, point of debate was this verse here that I just read. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And so the point of debate is what is the indecency? And there was two large rabbinical schools of thought in Jesus's day. One was called the school of Hillel. Uh, They allowed divorce for virtually any reason at all. Uh, You didn't like the way your wife's voice sounded or, you know, you didn't like her mother-in-law or whatever it is, the way she cooked, you name it. You could write off a writ of divorce. The school of Shammai would take this same text, and they allowed divorce only for marital unfaithfulness. And so Jesus, they're basically saying, what's your view? And he really goes with neither school because he said, what therefore God has joined together, no man is to separate. And so his answer was basically no divorce, which is equivalent to saying, I don't agree with either school of thought, Hillel or Shammai. And so for him to have allowed divorce, he would have had to have said, no divorce except for marital unfaithfulness. Then he would be agreeing with Shammai, in which case, um, you know, but he didn't do that. Now, there is an exception clause that's found only in Matthew's account, but it's dealing with the subject of betrothal. When a man is betrothed to his wife, they're called husband and wife. There's four Old Testament examples Uh, where a man is called uh, a woman's husband, but they had not yet consummated the relationship. Uh, With that said, if during the betrothal period, one had been unfaithful, and this is what Joseph runs into. He's called in the New Testament, the husband of Mary, finds out she's pregnant. He's going to put her away. It's the same word for divorce. He's going to divorce her because being a righteous man, he wants to do what's pleasing to the Lord, and he felt like this would be an obedience to the law due to her unfaithfulness, but because he loved her, wanted to put her away secretly so she wouldn't be disgraced and so forth. And, of course, the angel comes and says, no, this is a supernatural conception, the first one in the history of the earth. So um, with that said, uh, that's the circumstances, and that was, by the way, the unique position for almost 1,500 years of church history until Erasmus came on the scene, and he, uh, he debated Martin Luther, if you know him, over the issue of justification by grace alone through faith alone. And he taught really what became the Roman Catholic view, that faith plus works brings about salvation, rather than faith alone in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ brings salvation. Works are just the fruit, but not the root. And so he introduced the idea that adultery after the marriage relationship would constitute, for the innocent party only, 
uh, the freedom to remarry. And that's become a very popular view today. With that said, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens if she finds no favor in his eyes because of some indecency in her, that he writes a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her away from his house. Now, remember, Jesus, when he had this dialogue with the Pharisees, uh, he said, you know, because they brought up, well, Moses, and he allowed for divorce, and and Jesus made it clear, but because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. So Moses understood due to the time in human history. Remember, this is pre-Holy Spirit living in the church. He doesn't live in the church until after Pentecost. And even those who he had a relationship with in the Old Testament, as I cover my course in pneumatology that's available at the Institute of Biblical Studies at Search the Scriptures, there's less than 500 people total with whom he had any kind of relationship. Post-Pentecost, post the cross, not only does he convict and preserve righteousness and dispel darkness, salt, and light through the church, he also has a new source of ministry with an unbelieving world. And that's why some things were allowed under the old covenant that would never be considered today. Uh, You know, today, um, polygamy would be wrong. It was allowed under the old covenant. Why? Because of the hardness of man's heart. So let me keep reading because this is where it comes down to where you are. If he finds some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her away from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And the latter husband turns against her, a second husband, writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away from his house. Or if the latter husband who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. So you've got this scenario, a man's married, finds some indecency, dumps his wife. She defines security. This is why Jesus in Matthew 5 says you divorce your wife, you force her basically to marry another. Why? Because in the first century, a woman had no security apart from um, being married. And so they would often remarry. And so while she still makes a moral decision on her heart, uh, the person who divorced her also contributes to that uh, decision that she's made that's not, again, consistent with God's word. But again, you get rid of her. She marries a second time. The second husband, he gets rid of her. Now the first husband wants her back. And there's a lot of ink spilt. Why does he want her back? Does he want, you know, the wealth that she gained? Um, you know, there's all kinds of ink spilt that theologians debate over. But what no one can debate over is to go back to your first husband is to do what God calls an abomination. And so this is the scenario that you're in. You uh, have divorced your wife. You married a second time. Now you're back to the first wife. And so what this does is it, and this is part of the reason, I think, because Moses regulates it. He doesn't command it, he doesn't condone it, but he regulates it because of the hardness of man's heart. Nonetheless, because Moses himself recorded what God's ideal was in the opening chapters of Genesis. But this ordinance 
would basically discourage some hasty divorce where some guy goes off and has an affair and then is tired of that woman, and now he wants to have his first wife back. That's an abomination, and I'm not prepared to say that things that God calls an abomination no longer apply. To worship an idol was an abomination. To worship a false god was a, an abomination. To, to offer your children in fire to execute them to the God of Molech. God calls that an abomination for a man to lie with a man as he would with a woman. God calls that an abomination. To have an intimate relationship with an animal. Uh, to wear clothing of the opposite sex. Basically what today we'd call transgenderism. Our form, though, has just become more sophisticated with drugs and and uh, surgery and the like. Uh, uh, the earnings of a male or female process. These are all things God calls abominations. What you did when you got rid of your first wife, and I don't know what the reason is, and everyone has what they consider a good reason. What you did, and then you married another, now you want to come back to the first. Don't do it. It is wrong. It is plain. It is wrong. And so you're wrong on a number of levels. You don't really, one, even appreciate the sanctity of marriage because you think and again, even if you had never married again, that you can, oh, we can just live with each other, though we were legally divorced. No, you can't. That's wicked in and of itself because it, it's treating her like property, and she has no security. Who knows whether you're going to change your mind again? You're just using her, and that woman would be wise to run in the opposite direction. All right, good question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, And Charles, in his devotional time with his kids, one of the kids asked what happened to Lazarus in the time he was in the tomb. The Bible tells us it's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So what about Lazarus, as well as others in the Bible that died and then were brought back to life? Well, remember, Lazarus lives on the other side of the cross. And so he lives at a time when to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord was not actually true as of yet. Remember, in the Old Testament, when an Old Testament saint dies, they went to Sheol. And there are two compartments to Sheol, what we might call righteous Sheol, that is designated as paradise, and it's also designated as Abraham's bosom. And there's unrighteous Sheol, which uh, some translations to when that's clearly what's in mind, uh, they'll translate it Hades. But understand, Hades is the Greek translation for Sheol. And so sometimes people, when they read the word Hades, they immediately assume it's negative. Not necessarily. There was a plus side to Hades at one time in human history. But after the ascension, Christ emptied out Old Testament paradise and he led those captives directly into heaven. And so Hades continued only the negative side. And so in that sense, today, Hades only has a negative connotation. And by the way, that's where your people go, your friends go, your neighbors go, who don't know the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior. And, of course, it's a horrible place. It has the characteristics of hell. It's a place of torment. It's a place of utter darkness. It's a place of um, fire, and it's a miserable place. And it will continue someday in the sense that Revelation 20, 11 to 14, or 11 to 15, teaches that 
uh, death in Hades. The grave has the body. Hades has the soul. They'll ultimately all be cast into the lake of fire, which is the final resting place. So people are not in the lake of fire. Even Satan's not in hell yet. People say, well, you know, the devil's in hell. He's not in hell. He's never seen the inside of hell. He has total freedom to rule and to reign and and so forth. So what happened to Lazarus? Well, it's an argument from silence. One of two things happened. Either God allowed him to go to paradise for four days or approximately thereof because a part of a day can mean a whole day. Or he, in the truest sense, soul-sleeped. Now, I'm not in favor of the doctrine of soul sleep that Seventh-day Adventists teach. It's wrong that when you die today, your body, soul, and spirit are not in the grave. No, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, yes, it's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. This is the new covenant theology. And so there are—God never changes. He's always the same yesterday, today, and forever— but sometimes the way in which he deals with people does change depending on what time frame in God's uh, history we're dealing with. You didn't bring an animal sacrifice to church on Sunday, though it was commanded in the Old Testament. Why not? Because of the once and for all sacrifice has replaced that sacrificial system. So again, the Bible doesn't say specifically what happened to Lazarus. So it would be speculation on our part to say, well, we think this is what happened. But I think if there were ever a case for soul sleep, it would be with, excuse me, with Lazarus. And there's no such uh, case for today. All right. Good question. Let's go to the next. You know, your, your kids are thinking, Charles, which tells me that's great. You're teaching them the word of God and they're perceptive and Kids are so teachable, and you don't want to miss those years and dads who are to be the family shepherd. Not that mom can't teach the children as well. She'll do a tremendous amount. But for them to see a dad in the evening and at night open the Word of God and to teach them apart from the everyday events of life, that's so important. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, Sue from Beaufort was wondering if we'll all be the same age in heaven or will there be some age differences? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. Sometimes people ask this on two, age, two ends of the spectrum. You know, your grandmother dies at 103 or your infant dies at three months. And what will they be like in heaven? Well, for one, they'll be immediately recognizable. And so we know that for clearly. Look at even Peter, James, and John. They're in the Mount of Transfiguration. When God brought up Moses and Elijah from Old Testament paradise, uh, they were recognizable. They immediately knew who they were. Though they had never met them, they lived centuries before. And so, one, you'll, you'll know who your loved ones are. This is, again, an argument from silence, but what I think is interesting is that the those who die during the tribulation and you know they'll be the broad range of people uh, they might be a woman who's pregnant with a baby and she's slaughtered and because she refuses to take the 666 uh, and so not only does she die but the baby within her womb uh, they're all seen singing and praising the lord together 
And so that makes me think that, you know, if you lose, say, a baby or a loved one, you know, you're not going to rock that baby and watch the baby grow. Uh, they'll be in a resurrected body, fully functioning. Remember, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so this body as it is, in whatever age it dies, whether it dies three weeks after conception or 103 weeks, 103 years after conception, it's not suited for heaven. So God creates us with a resurrection body, and there's nothing that seems to indicate that that resurrection body is going to change as we move down the continuum. So good thinking question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and John from Phoenix, Arizona, would like you to please explain God the Father and God the Son. He says, I have a relative that only has a Christian radio station on VCY America. And I was listening, and on the radio, I'm trying to understand why the speaker said Jesus Christ created things. I thought they were supposed to say God the Father created the world, people, animals, etc. I don't remember who the person was that was speaking or the specifics. Do you have a previous program that you can help me understand this? By the way, does your program play here in Arizona? No, it doesn't except through WAGP.net. And people listen to us all over the country, really all over the world. And in some countries, uh, there is no Christian radio. We were just having this discussion uh, Sunday at our new members lunch, I have lunch most Sundays with a handful of new members just to get to know them better. And um, we were saying that, you know, there's no Christian radio in Canada. And the person was shocked and said, no, there hasn't been Christian radio for, for decades there. They don't allow it. It's outlawed. And of course, the fruit of that is becoming more and more evident. You see a country that is becoming increasingly hostile uh, to the Christian faith and any expression of it. Uh, with that said, uh, I don't know what VCY America is. Do you know, Rick, what VCY America is? I believe it's a network, kind of like Salem or Moody or I one see. of those. Yeah, with that said, uh, there there are some references I could point John to. One would be my course on pneumatology. And in the course on pneumatology, I, one of the things I do is I show how the Holy Spirit is equal with God the Father and God the Son. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So when you think of the creation of the world, really almost any ministry, uh, who's involved? Well, you can't dissect God. So think about spiritual gifts. Who gave you a spiritual gift? Most of you would say, well, the Holy Spirit. Well, he is certainly highlighted in that process. Uh, and so 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 speak largely of his ministry and the giving of gifts. And yet God the Father in Ephesians, or, or God the Father in Romans 12 is credited with the giving of spiritual gifts. In Jesus, God the Son in Ephesians 4, he ascended to high and he gave gifts to men. And then he begins to speak of those spiritual gifts that we all have. So when you think of the creation of the world, who created the world? Well, God the Father did. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, God was the creator. Uh, in six days, Moses will say, the Lord, Yahweh, they are a different word for God, made the heavens and the earth, the seeing all that's within it. And therefore, on that basis, because he did it not in six million years or 60 million years or six long days or six literal days with big gaps between, 
but in six literal days he rested, and then on the seventh day he rested. And so, therefore, he he blessed the Sabbath day. He made it holy. And Moses, by application and by divine commentary, helps us to understand the days of creation, that um, we work six literal days, but one in seven we, we rest. So there the Lord, again, the Father. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. We quote that verse all the time. And the expanse are declaring the work of his hands. Again, a reference to the Lord. And yet the Holy Spirit is credited with the creation of the world. Uh, Even in the opening verse of Genesis, which I'm at, it says the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Uh, The psalmist affirms the uh, the, the work of God in creation, uh, God the Holy Spirit in creation in Psalm 104. So Job does the same thing. So the Spirit's involved in creation. And so if you turn to John 1, it says, in the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God. So there's the Word who's with the Father, and the Word was God. He's equal to the Father. And then it says, he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being. So who created the world? Well, according to John 1, uh, the Word did. Who's the Word? Well, we don't have to wonder, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Paul will say, for by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, the things that are visible, the things that are invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Who's the him? Clearly, contextually, only one person, God the Son. So what you need is some good theology on Trinitarianism. So you, um, what maybe the shorter route for you, uh, this is John from Phoenix, is uh, to go to my basic discipleship course and take that. I think it would be a huge help to you, but one of the handouts is on the doctrine of the Trinity. And we hit on some of these issues. So God the Father is equal to God the Son, and God the Son is equal to God the Spirit. Now, we don't, like oneness Pentecostals, like T.D. Jakes, teach modalism, that the Father becomes the Son, and then the Son becomes the Spirit, and the Spirit becomes the Father. No, the Bible affirms three co-equal, co-eternal persons existing at the same time forever and ever. And that's not contrary to the oneness of God, which is a big stumbling block to a lot of Jews when they think about becoming Christians. Because God, for instance, fills the tabernacle, later the temple, and yet they're praying to him in heaven above. Well, where is he? He's in both places. Are they saying there's two gods? No, not at all. God literally was in the tabernacle while they prayed to him in heaven above. And here in this verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt, the word dwelt is literally the word tabernacled among us. So God in the Old Testament tabernacled in uh, animal skins from which the tabernacle was made. Now he tabernacles through the second member of the Trinity in human skin. Anyway, good question. Again, I would say go to searchthescriptures.org. Uh, Go to Basic Discipleship and do the handout on the Doctrine of the Trinity. This would be huge for you. Very good. Uh, Sharon from Bluffton writes, Recently, I've had people claim that Jesus was a refugee. 
Their argument to back this up was the dictionary definition of the noun refugee and reading Bible passages in Greek. What apologetic could you suggest to refute this kind of woke Christianity? Rick, you've got your computer there in front of you. Would you give me a definition of a refugee, you know, Merriam-Webster or any, any decent dictionary? Um, because I don't think even the so-called political definition of a refugee Jesus would even fit. What does it say? Well, the Oxford Dictionary says a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. All right, so let's think about this. Uh, Refugees, we usually think of someone who's forced to leave their country uh, because of some, you know, pending violence or war or sometimes just for a better life. And that's, for the most part, is what's happening in in our day. Um, But with that broad definition, even Jesus doesn't meet that. So I've turned to Matthew chapter 2 here, and it says this, Now, in verse 13, now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. So they're in Bethlehem, and they're going to flee to Egypt about 150 miles away. In fact, there's a huge uh, Jewish congregation of people in Egypt about 150 miles away that Josephus wrote about. More than likely, that's the section of Egypt they went to. In either case... Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod, and this is one of seven Herods in the Bible, this is Herod the Great, the baby killer, is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled out of Egypt. I called my son. So Jesus was not a refugee in the current form of the definition. Think your way through this. Number one, he's in one section of the Roman Empire, and where does he go? To another section of the Roman Empire, probably 150 miles away max, if they went that far. Um, It would be like, I'm in South Carolina, and I go to North Carolina. That doesn't make me a, a refugee. Uh, that would be today like someone just moving from one state in the United States in to go in, under the jurisdiction of another state. But they're still under the jurisdiction of the United States. And again, he makes it very clear that, um, they, that both Joseph and Mary went out of their way not to disobey the law, but to obey the law. So you read the Christmas account that we cite every year in Luke chapter 2, and they want to go in obedience to the law because, again, God has called us to submit to governing authorities, contrary to the first question uh, that we dealt with today. And uh, they wanted to go and pay their taxes because they were commanded to do that. Uh, again, they are in obedience to the laws that are over them. And so they, they moved to Egypt in order to you know, escape Herod's murderous plot but they have a plan to come back. They don't go there begging for money. They're actually supplying their own need. God supplied it through the gift of the Magi. The gold they would have had would be enough to finance their needs for quite a period of time. And so just in terms of using the term refugee, it doesn't even begin to fit. So I would say this, why is this a new thing in evangelicalism? Because evangelicalism is becoming woke. 
And what we're seeing is this growing apostasy, this falling away from the faith. And there's a new emphasis, and I hate to say it, but Tim Keller, who recently died, he put a lot of steam behind this. And it's what we call the social gospel. The social gospel is never to replace the true gospel, but that's what's happening in the American church. That, you know, God has called us to meet people's needs, to feed the poor, to care for the transgender, to affirm the homosexual. Uh, All these social issues that the culture is driving that we need to get behind them to show the love of Jesus. No, we don't. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't feed a hungry stomach because it's hard to listen to the gospel maybe if you're hungry, but that's not our job. Our job is not first and principally to to go and dig wells so that people can have fresh water. But if digging a well provides an opportunity to share Christ, then that's a good thing. And that's a great thing to do. And that's what our focus is to be, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And secondly, there are these in our day who ignore the whole idea that God, Acts 17, established borders. If, uh, and there's a reason God established borders. And one of the reasons is it curbs evil. If there's no borders in the world and no jurisdiction, then evil has more free reign than ever. And we're really seeing this. You know, people are coming across, they say 6 million people have come across the border and they break it down. 2 million they can't find. 4 million who are supposedly registered, they just walk across the border, get your name, off you go, however they send them. Look, this is terrible. We're letting, uh, they found, last count, there was 74 known terrorists who were on the FBI terrorist list. So So there's terrorists coming in. There's gang members that are coming in. There's drugs that are coming in. We are allowing for the spread of evil. And sadly, I think there's a political party that is doing this because they think in the long run they're going to get votes. And this is, again, this is, this, is, this is wrong because God established borders. Does that mean we shouldn't allow aliens in our country? Not at all. And so there's a ton of verses in the, in the uh, Torah, uh, in the law, in the first five books, the Pentateuch, that speak about how, say, the Jewish people should treat aliens. Don't mistreat the alien. Remember, you were once aliens in Egypt. And so God gives some clear guidelines. But the alien who came into Israel fell under the dictates of Israeli law, so to speak. They could just come in and do whatever they wanted. You want to come into Israel? Then you're going to follow our laws. And that's what God demanded. And when these people come in illegally, they don't know what it means to be an American. They don't know our Judeo-Christian ethic that seemingly is fast dissolving, but we are adding, um, you know, chemicals to make it dissolve quicker, Uh, political chemicals, because we're denying basically who we are as a country. And of course, this is what's going on in college campuses across America, they're indoctrinating, you know, our young people with socialism. My son is engaged in a fight in the state of North Carolina to get what he was successfully able to do in South Carolina to get the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, and the Emancipation Proclamation as a three-hour course. And he spent years on it. And uh, as a side note of what he was about, 
and the governor invited him in. He wrote the legislation for the senator, state senator he worked for, and the governor invited him in and gave him the pen and all those good things and a plaque. And and now he's doing it in North Carolina, but it won't result in 21,000 students a year studying these documents, uh, and including a letter from a Birmingham jail from Dr. King and the Emancipation Proclamation, if I failed to uh, add those, but 354,000 students a year. Who's opposing them? The presidents of these various uh, institutions in the University of North Carolina system. They're opposing them. Why would you want to oppose this? You have to take a three-hour course on world citizenship, and you, you can take courses on, you know, transgenderism and art forms and all these wicked things, but you can't take a course defending our American history. So this is the problem in... And when we buy into this mentality that Jesus was a refugee, if I went to a church and they were saying Jesus was a refugee, I would know right off the guy had no credible skills to properly and rightly divide the word of truth. I'd leave that church. I would never come back. Okay, very good, very good. Uh, Kevin from uh, Queen Creek, Arizona, says, I was listening to a recent sermon on the book of Revelation. I was discussing this with a friend of mine that ascribes to the Catholic Bible as the true and accurate Word of God. You mentioned that actually the Catholic version has been added to or was not completely correct, which I agree with. Where or what can I refer him to for a better understanding of Scripture, and is the best Bible to be studying the true and accurate Word of God? I believe he is saved, though none of us here on earth knows who is and who is not. I do believe 100% that I am. I've attended your church and participated in a few Sunday schools there in Buford and was very impressed with your sermons and folks in your church. Thank you, and uh, could you please take the time to help my friend understand his belief? Well, Kevin from Arizona, I appreciate your question, and it is a great one. Uh, again, we offer what we call through Search the Scriptures, the Institute of Biblical Studies, and one of the courses, and we teach these on a master's level, and so they're not for the faint of heart. It's a master's level devoid of any um, you know, requirement to have Greek or Hebrew. But with that said, one of the courses we offer is bibliology, and section six of the bibliology course deals with the canonization of Scripture and how do we get the 66 books that we have. And so the verse that immediately comes to mind is found in Second Peter 1, because this is the verse that Roman Catholics are going to use. Remember, First and Second Peter were written by the Apostle Peter, whom they claim is the first pope. Look, popery didn't really begin until the 6th century when the Bishop of Rome took a distinguished role and instead of just calling him a bishop, they called him a pope. Um, and so they say, well, this is what the first pope said. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so out of context, ignoring the verses that come before it, they say that you cannot interpret the Scripture. And this is why when I was a child, we didn't read the Bible. Why? Because only the Catholic Church could rightly determine what the verse meant. I'm not saying that there hasn't been times in the history of the Church where if someone interprets a text of Scripture and it's so bizarre and not even close to what we would call 
historical orthodox interpretation that someone shouldn't challenge them. But there's no inherent right in the Roman Catholic Church that they alone can interpret Scripture. In fact, his whole point was is that there was never a prophecy, never a verse of Scripture that was written, and he's speaking about the prophets of old who were so inspired that after they wrote what they wrote, they had to go back and study them to understand who they were writing about. But these were men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit, and the word moved here is that of a, a wind filling a sail. And so as the Spirit of God moved them using their personalities, their writing styles and so forth, they wrote the very Word of God. But it didn't originate with them. It wasn't their own interpretation. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say a couple things. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're an evangelical Bible-believing Christian, whether you're a Roman Catholic or a member of the Orthodox Church, we affirm there's 39 books in the Old Testament as inspired. Evangelical Protestants, Catholics, and the Orthodox faith, and various uh, subsets, and all three affirm there's 27 books that are written in the New Testament. 39 in the Old, 3 times 9 is 27, 27 in the New. However, the difference between the Roman Catholic Bible is that they have 13 additional books that were written between the two Testaments in that 400 years when there was no prophet in Israel. The Orthodox Church actually has 17. Now, if you studied uh, the Roman Catholic Catechism, as I did as a boy, uh, we're told that no one can determine what's inspired apart from the authoritative Roman Catholic Church. And so they have a number of statements where they say, we determined what's inspired, we determine the canon of Scripture. That's not true, and they write this largely in a series of meetings called the Council of Trent that met over a couple of decades, and they produced a final document that was reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and in 2010 at the College of Cardinals. So it's very much an active document. And, of course, in that document, among other things, they deny that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. They have these series of anathemas where the word anathema actually comes from Galatians, where Paul, for instance, says, if someone comes, even an angel from heaven, and preaches you to you a gospel contrary to that which we gave to you, let him be anathema. It's a very strong word. It means damned to hell. And so the Roman church had all these anathemas against Protestants, and of course, they're responding to the 95 assertions or theses that Luther tacked to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And so, but look, no man determined what's a part of the canon of Scripture. All man does is he recognizes what's inspired. And there was a reason that the books written between the Old and the New Testament were never recognized as authoritative. Were they helpful? Yeah, they could be helpful for historical purposes to help us to understand what took place in that 400-year period. And some of the history they record is very important as it relates to Old Testament books, especially, say, to Daniel. But they were never viewed as canonical. You say, how do you know that? Well, for number one, the apostles and Jesus himself never quote the intertestament books. They quote the rest of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, but they never quote those books as being authoritative. Why? Because they weren't inspired by God. In fact, there are many things that are written in them that are totally contrary to previous revelation. 
And so, again, we cover in that section of the course how we got our Bible, what were the tests, the evidences that a book was part of the canon. The word canon is from a Latin word. It means a measuring stick. In other words, how do we know that these are, this is plumb line truth, that these are measuring sticks that God gave us by which we can discern right and wrong, what's inspired, what's not. Uh, for instance, in, there's a book called Second Maccabees. And so in the Catholic Bible, there's two books called First and Second Maccabees. In the Orthodox Bible, there's First and Second, Third and Fourth Maccabees. But in Second Maccabees, I think it's the 12th chapter, don't quote me on that, they talk about praying for the dead and making atonement for the dead. Look, you can't make atonement for some dead person. Um, there's no amount of atonement man could do. Even the atonements of the Old Testament couldn't take away sin. They just prefigured the ultimate work of Christ. There's no need to pray for someone who's dead, but there is in Roman Catholic theology, and they really build their doctrine of purgatory out of Second Maccabees, where it's taught to pray for the dead. Look, you can't redeem someone with money. We're not bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb. And one second after someone dies, they're either in heaven or in hell. Now, if you go to the Roman Catholic Bible, what they've creatively done is they've taken these Old Testament books, the 39 that we have, and they've um, dispersed between them the books written between the Testaments. And they've done it very creatively. For instance, in my Bible, there's 12 chapters in Daniel. By the way, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, how many chapters were there in the book of Daniel? 12. How many are there in the Roman Catholic Bible? 14. They added two chapters to it, two books that they tacked on to the book of Daniel. That's one, it's dishonest. It's just dishonest, and it's not, not true. With that said, you can give me any Roman Catholic Bible, and by God's grace, I can still, with the 66 books that God did inspire, lead them to a true and genuine faith in Christ. So there's some really erroneous thinking that they want to endorse in order to teach their false doctrine. And so I would say to this brother from Arizona, go, even if you don't want to take the whole course on bibliology that has over 500 pages of note-taking outlines, at least listen to the messages that deal with the section on canonicity, and you're going to understand this issue in much more detail that I spend, you know, two or three Wednesday nights on uh, preaching for about an hour rather than the last five or six minutes we've taken. Very good. We have a couple more minutes left here, and Nancy from Westchester, Pennsylvania, wants to, first of all, thank you for your ministry. It has changed her life in many ways, she says. And she would like you to give more detail of the events in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Who are these people, and what did they do after they appeared to many people? No, it's a, it's a great question, and it's in keeping with the Feast of uh, first fruits that Jesus spoke of. Uh, Jesus is deemed the first fruit of all those who had come out of the grave. And so in the Old Testament, there are seven feasts, and uh, four of the spring feasts were fulfilled at Christ's first coming, the last three feasts are in relationship to his return to the earth, his second coming, not the rapture, but his return to the earth. 
And so it's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover. Uh, On that year, it fell on a Friday. The next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, um, you know, was a picture. Leaven was a picture of sin. And so the leaven in the home needed to be removed. And so unleavened bread was a picture of the sinless body of Christ. And so they broke unleavened bread at the Passover, and it was in that context that Jesus institutes uh, the new uh, Lord's Supper that was not found in the Old Testament. And he said, this is my body, and it was a picture of sinlessness. And it was going to be broken for us so that we could be uh, forgiven and we could find uh, new life in, in Jesus. And so Jesus uh, is crucified. He, he dies on Friday. He's buried his sinless body on unleavened bread. He comes out of the grave on Resurrection Sunday. That's the first day of the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of First Fruits. And 50 days later, the 50th day was also a Sunday. And that's the day the Holy Spirit came and we are indwelt and God begins and he forms the, the church. And so, again, these are things are not by accident. And so the text says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He yielded up his spirit, the veil of the temple's torn in two. Why? Because we now have access, and it's torn from top to bottom. Heaven tears it uh, because we now have new access to God. The tombs were opened in many bodies of the saints uh, who had fallen asleep. He's talking about Old Testament saints. There's no New Covenant saints yet because they start on Pentecost. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that is, died, were raised. And coming out of the tombs, and most precisely in any literal translation, and there's a couple of English Bibles that don't translate this well, but this is why you need a modern literal translation. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, because again, Jesus is the first fruit. And so what would they do at first fruits? They would take a sheave. A sheave is like a bundle of wheat. And there was a singular bundle. They didn't wave two or three sheaves, but a single sheave. And it was waved as a thank offering to the Lord. And that single sheave represented the Lord Jesus. And that small number of uh, strands of, of, of grain that were with it, uh, that represented these people who were going to be raised out of the tomb. What happened to them, the Scripture doesn't say, but since it's consistent with what we read in First Fruits and what would God would do with the Son is they are resurrected and they are obviously brought up into heaven. It's not someone like Lazarus and seven other people in the Old Testament who are raised to life only to die again. These are the first to come out in a resurrected body. And remember, at first fruits, it was a picture. You wave that Thanksgiving offering because here's a sample of what's yet to come. And so, um, you know, right now we were just up in Florence taking care of my 90-year-old mother-in-law, and uh, we were there on my day off, and um, the first fruits of the blueberries came in, and they were just magnificent, Uh, just big blue, but hundreds and hundreds of blueberries in the bush haven't ripened yet. They are still going to come in a few weeks down the road, and then another brand won't come for another month down the road. And uh, so the first fruits was a picture of what was to come. And so there's the Lord Jesus, this small group of Old Testament saints. They picture the great harvest that will come in the rapture, 
And then the gleanings that will take place at the second coming, those who are uh, butchered and crucified and beheaded and all kinds of means, I'm sure, that they'll use to execute God's people, largely beheading. That seems to be the order of the day, not crucifixion. But nonetheless, um, those will be the gleanings, and they'll be resurrected at the second coming. So uh, this is what first fruit pictures, and it's, again, all four of those feasts. There's three yet in the future, but they'll be fulfilled in reference to the second coming. Good question. Let's go to the next. Okay, we've got less than three minutes, but Nick from Beaufort was raised Catholic and became a Christian and wants to know, how can Catholics call themselves Christians when they don't follow Jesus? Well, they would take issue with that. They would say, well, we do follow Jesus. But remember, everyone who claims to follow Jesus is not following the true Jesus. Paul speaks about another Jesus, meaning not the true Jesus. So are there Roman Catholics who would truly follow Jesus? Of course there are. There are born-again Roman Catholics who came to faith in Christ, maybe through a station like this, and we've had scores over the decades who have found Christ just by 88.7, listening to this frequency and different speakers, and they heard the plan of salvation. They may not have known it was contrary to what the Roman Church teaches, but it is. The Roman Church denies salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So question, can a person believe that good works help save and still go to heaven? And the definitive biblical answer is no, they cannot. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain, Paul will say in Galatians 2.21, paraphrase, the Living Bible says, if a man could be saved by good works, Christ died for no reason. To the one who works, his wage is reckoned not as a gift, but as an obligation. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who saves or justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So the one that God saves is not the person who works for it. It's the person who admits that he is morally bankrupt to highly religious people. Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, in air quotes, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. On another occasion, he told them the prostitutes and the ripoff artists, the tax collectors, will get in before they. Why? Because those people knew they were morally bankrupt, that unless God developed a rescue plan, they wouldn't stand a chance. But when they compared their life next to them, they looked fine. But God compares us to Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and that puts the ground level, all equally in need of a Savior. And so if you don't know him, I invite you today to call upon him in faith. Trust in him to save you, and then you can truly call yourself a Christian. Good question. We're out of time. I wish I could spend more time on it, but thanks for All those who've called and emailed, have a great day as you walk with Christ.